Satan's power has been on full display in this poem. He's come up with a brilliant plan to upset God. He's broken out of hell and traversed the chaotic void. He has found God's created universe, and today, he will find Adam and Eve. Only one question remains. How will he do this? How could he possibly convince Adam and Eve to willingly rebel against their creator who gave them a perfect existence in paradise? What could possibly compel them to willingly choose disobedience at such a terrible cost. And, by the way, who are these people anyway? Who are Adam and Eve? What's it like to live in paradise? And how could they possibly be dumb enough to lose it? Welcome to Darkness Visible. This show is for Mr. Orm's 10th grade English students, but anybody's welcome to listen along. Today, the garden. pick up more or less right where we left off. Satan, of course, as you know, is making his way towards Eden. He's trying to find Adam and Eve so that he can pervert them and just completely ruin their lives. Their lives, which, by the way, up to this point, are pretty darn fantastic. Uh, You might have noticed that Milton described back in book three, Adam and Eve are experiencing uninterrupted joy and unrivaled love. So, like, their existence is absolutely blissful. They experience no pain, no doubt, no suffering, no guilt. Everything is great. And, of course, that's the kind of God that Milton wants to believe in, a God that's capable of creating a perfectly good universe, a a God whose all goodness and all powerfulness work together to make a truly good creation. This truly good creation is what Milton's going to describe here as Satan makes his way into Eden. Now, Satan climbs up uh, because Eden is on top of this hill. And it's surrounded by paradise, but specifically the Garden of Eden is at the very top of this hill, and it's surrounded by a high wall. Now, Adam and Eve, they they couldn't really jump over this wall, but Satan certainly can. He notices that there's an entrance, there's like a gate, and it's not guarded. So, like, Satan could just go in through the gate, you know, he could go through the front door like a normal person. But instead, he decides that because there's a gate there, he's just going to spite the fact that there's a gate and jump over the fence. And so that's what Satan does. Well, once he's inside... Milton gives us a couple similes to sort of creep out the reader and just show how scary the situation is. If you can imagine a wolf climbing over a fence, getting access to those sheep. Or if you can imagine a thief climbing into a rich person's house, getting ready to steal all their stuff. 
Then you can imagine what it's like in this moment when Satan jumps over the wall into the Garden of Eden. Well, inside the Garden of Eden, Satan sees the richness and beauty of God's creation on full display, and it is absolutely gorgeous, folks. I don't have to tell you, of course, that God is capable of creating endless variety of beautiful and incredible things. We've got all these fruit trees that are growing all over the place. We've got an immense variety of animals and beautiful, even even the air itself uh, is so pure and refreshing that it it almost eases some of Satan's agony that he was describing at the beginning of book four. Well, Satan sits up on top of the tree of life, and he looks down and begins plotting his next move. And it's just a little bit ironic that Satan up there is plotting death while he sits atop the tree of life. Right next to the tree of life, we have another very significant and important tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And these two trees, well, we, we know they're going to be significant, but for right now, Satan doesn't quite understand their significance. In fact, Milton takes pains to point that out, that Satan is sitting on top of the tree of life, plotting death, and even he doesn't understand the irony of that situation. Well, as he's looking down, looking at all the animals, he suddenly realizes that there are these two who are different. Two of these creatures stand out above all the other ones in some very particular ways. Take a listen to the way that these two very distinctive and unique creatures are described, beginning on line 288. Two of far nobler shape, erect and tall, godlike erect, with native honor clad in naked majesty, seemed lords of all. And worthy seemed, for in their looks divine, the image of their glorious maker shone. Truth, wisdom, sanctitude severe and pure. Severe, but in true filial freedom placed, whence true authority in men. Though both not equal, as their sex not equal seemed. For contemplation he and valor formed. For softness she and sweet attractive grace he for god only she for god in him his fair large front and eye sublime declared absolute rule and hyacinthine locks round from his parted forelock manly hung clustering but not beneath his shoulders broad she as a veil down to the slender waist, her unadorned golden tresses wore disheveled, but in wanton ringlets waved as the vine curls her tendrils, which implied subjection, but required with gentle sway, and by her yielded, by him best received, yielded with coy submission, modest pride, and sweet reluctant amorous delay. Nor those mysterious parts were then concealed, then was not guilty shame, dishonest shame of nature's works, honor dishonorable sin bred. How have ye troubled all mankind with shows instead, mere shows of seeming pure, and banished from man's life his happiest life, simplicity and spotless innocence? So passed they naked on, nor shunned the sight of God or angel, for they thought no ill. 
So hand in hand they passed, the loveliest pair that ever since in love's embraces met. Adam, the goodliest man of men since born his sons, the fairest of her daughters, Eve. So this introduction to these two very distinctive and different characters in the garden is, of course, fraught with all kinds of peril. I mean, just look at the the differences between Adam and Eve and what those differences apparently mean to Milton. He describes them, and and there's something specifically about their hair that seems to be very important to him in, in the way that their outward appearance reflects their inner nature. Adam, of course, well, he's big. He's big and strong, and he has this manly front. He's got a sublime eye, and just the look in his face declares absolute rule. So you can tell just by looking at this guy, oh yes, out of the two of these, he is in charge. I can see that because he is bigger. Okay. Not only that, but his hair, look at his hair, it's parted down the middle, and it clusters down there at, at, at his shoulders, but it doesn't go below his shoulders. Whereas Eve's hair, let's take a look at Eve's hair. Yeah, that's, oh, I see, it's curly and wavy, and it's going, wow, all the way down to that slender waist. Hmm, you know what I think that curly hair implies? Milton says, her hair implies subjection. Because Eve's hair is long and curly, she's obviously the one who is meant to be subject to him. Yeah, sure, that makes sense. His hair is parted and doesn't go past his shoulders. He's big and strong, and he's taller than her. She has long, curly hair. So already we can figure out the dynamic of this relationship. He's in charge, and she is subjected to him. That's obvious. But her subjection to Adam is not unthinking and automatic, because where's the fun in that? Oh, no, no. Her subjection to Adam is yielded exactly how he wants it to be yielded. Not automatically, but with coy submission, modest pride, and sweet, reluctant, amorous delay. Eve is playing hard to get because it's more fun for Adam. That is how her hair identifies her position as a subject to him. It's, it's compared in a simile here, her hair is compared to a vine, which curls its tendrils. Now, when you think about vines, they sort of grow up and around existing structures. Well, in this simile, Adam is the existing structure. He is the big, tall, strong man. And Eve, well, she's this tender little vine that just sort of curls and winds its way around things. So Adam provides the structure, and Eve is an adornment to that structure. She yields to him gently and modestly, just as a vine gently and modestly yields to the structure that it grows around.
Okay. Uh. Okay, so. There's a little voice inside of our heads right now, which is saying, Hey, I, people are equal. People are equal, Milton. Why are you saying they're not? In 296, he says they're not equal, as their sex not equal seemed. It's more than a little upsetting, in my opinion, particularly that line that sets this all up. He says it with such simplicity and such, like, authority, you know? Hey, look, look, man, woman, do they look equal? No, they do not. They look different. Well, they are different. They are unequal. And you know who's in charge? The man. You know why? Because Eve has curly hair. I suppose this would be a good time to remind you that the very first female creation in Milton is the personification of sin itself, the goddess which popped out of Satan's head. Our second female character, Eve, appears to have been designed as an adornment and source of pleasure for Adam. He, in line 299, was created for God only. She, for God in him. I don't know how Milton can make it any clearer that he is sexist. Sexism is prejudice or discrimination, typically against women, on the basis of sex. That is to say, because a woman is a woman, she is less likely to be capable and qualified in the same ways that a man is. But my question is not, is Milton sexist? Obviously he is. Obviously he believes that men and women are unequal and that women are meant to be subordinate to men. That, in my opinion, is the textbook definition of sexism. My question going forward in this text is, is Milton a misogynist? Misogyny is a hostility to women, specifically a context in which women cannot truly be free. A context or society that is actively hostile to women. I think that remains to be seen in Milton, but he certainly is not starting off on the right foot here if he's trying to create a paradise in which both Adam and Eve can be truly happy. Because if misogyny is the name of the game in Eden, it's very difficult to imagine a happy Eve. Then again, perhaps God really is capable of creating these beings in such a way that they have specific roles which they actually enjoy fulfilling. And maybe, just as Adam probably enjoys being the ruler of everything around him, and having this beautiful, subservient woman to modestly and coyly submit to him, perhaps Eve, in the way she's been created by God, actually enjoys modestly and coyly submitting to Adam after a sweet, reluctant, amorous delay. Maybe she likes that. 
I don't know. I don't know much about her yet, but I will tell you this. There's a lot of women who don't like the implication that they exist to adorn and satisfy men and that they are by nature subservient to men. I think there's a lot of men who don't like that idea as well, and I think Milton's probably kind of aware of that because he takes pains to put it right up front. I hope you're getting a little bit fired up by this element of the conversation because in class discussion, this takes off. We're going to have to move forward with Adam and Eve's first interaction with each other in the poem. Line 325. Under a tuft of shade that on a green stood whispering soft, by a fresh fountain side they sat them down. And after no more toil of their sweet gardening labor than sufficed to recommend cool zephyr and make ease more easy, wholesome thirst and appetite more grateful, to their supper fruits they fell. Nectarine fruits, which the compliant boughs yielded them sidelong as they sat recline on the soft downy bank damasked with flowers. The savory pulp they chew, mm, and in the rind, still as they thirsted, scoop the brimming stream. Nor gentle purpose, nor endearing smiles wanted, nor youthful dalliance as beseems fair couple linked in happy nuptial league alone as they. About them frisking played all the beasts of the earth, since wild, and of all chase in wood or wilderness, forest or den. Sporting, the lion ramped, and in his paw dandled the kid. Bears, tigers, ounces, pards gambled before them. The unwieldy elephant... To make them mirth, used all his might and wreathed his lithe proboscis. Close, the serpent sly, insinuating, wove with Gordian twine his braided train, and of his fatal guile gave proof unheeded. Others on the grass couched, and now filled with pasture, gazing sat, or bedward ruminating, for the sun, declined, was hasting now with prone career to the ocean isles, and in the ascending scale of heaven, the stars that usher evening rose. Adam and Eve are having dinner together, and their dinner is, is so delightful. Uh, these two, you know, they, they just love being around each other. They've worked just hard enough to work up an appetite. They are gardeners, that's their work, and as they've finished gardening and it's evening time, they're sort of relaxing, they lie down next to this bubbling brook, and they have dinner. Do they have to do any work? Well, no, they just lay down, and the compliant boughs, that is, the trees, the fruit trees, they actually lean down and put the fruit right in front of their mouths, so that Adam and Eve can simply recline next to each other and lazily wait for the tree to lean over and give them food. And so the tree leans down with its nectarine fruit, and Adam opens his mouth, and in comes the fruit, and oh, oh that's delicious. So good, and then you take the rind of the fruit, and you dip it into this stream of nectar that's flowing by and drink some delicious nectar. Ah, perfect. It's so great. What could possibly be better than this delightful little dinner, just the two of them? Oh, I know. How about some entertainment? Well, there's some great entertainment walking around right in front of them. All the animals in creation come and have this little animal parade. 
And you may notice one animal in particular gets kind of into it, the elephant. The unwieldy elephant, to make them mirth, used all his might and wreathed his lithe proboscis. I love that line. The elephant kind of gambles up here and he, he starts, you know, moving his big old nose around. And that circle that he makes with his nose is apparently intended to make Adam and Eve laugh. It's he, like the elephant exists for no other purpose than to just give them mirth. They, they, they think it's funny. They're like, hey, look at that. I'm sitting here. You know, I'm sitting here eating my nectarine, and I'm dipping it into the nectar stream, and I'm drinking some nectar. I'm like, hey, look at that elephant. That's hilarious. And Eve's like, yeah, babe, it's so funny. This is delightful. It's so fun. It's so cute and goofy, you know, the, the just like sheer perfection of everything. Everything about this situation, I think, is so, so like funny. It's, it's strangely silly, but at the same time, it's, it's, I think, meant to be just like, this is the ideal, you know? This is the good life. You work a little bit just to kind of work up an appetite, then you kick back and enjoy a delicious meal, and at the end, nobody has to do the dishes, and meanwhile, you get this great entertainment, all of God's creation just sort of parading before you as you sit back and enjoy the company of your closest loved one. Um, wow, like, okay, great, so... Of course they're happy if this is their daily routine. They're living in bliss. Well, weirdly, and I love how he kind of sneaks in here to the frame, on line 356, we are reminded, oh yeah, we are all seeing this through the eyes of Satan. When Satan, still in gaze as first he stood, scarce thus at length failed speech recovered sad, Oh, hell! What do mine eyes with grief behold? Into our room of bliss thus high advanced creatures of other mold, earth-born perhaps, not spirits, yet to heavenly spirits bright little inferior, whom my thoughts pursue with wonder and could love. So lively shines in them divine resemblance, and such grace the hand that formed them on their shape hath poured. Ah, gentle pair, ye little think how nigh your change approaches, when all these delights will vanish and deliver ye to woe. More woe the more your taste is now of joy. Happy, <laughs> but for so happy, ill-secured long to continue, and this high seat your heaven ill-fenced to keep out such a foe as now is entered. Yet no purposed foe to you, whom I could pity thus forlorn, though I unpitied. League with you I seek, and mutual amity, so straight, so close, that I with you must dwell, or you with me henceforth. My dwelling haply may not please, like this Fair paradise, your sense, yet such accept your maker's work. He gave it me, which I as freely give. 
hell shall unfold to entertain you to her widest gates and send forth all her kings. There will be room, not like these narrow limits, to receive your numerous offspring. If no better place, thank him who puts me loath to this revenge on you who wrong me not, for him who wronged. And should I at your harmless innocence melt, as I do, yet public reason just, honor and empire with revenge enlarged by conquering this new world, compels me now to do what else, though damned, I should abhor. So spake the fiend, and with necessity, the tyrant's plea excused his devilish deeds. All right, Milton, go ahead. Call Satan a tyrant. Flip us upside down like that again, that's fine. Okay, so so Satan, he's tyrannical here, apparently, because he is saying, look, I don't necessarily think that you, Adam and Eve, deserve this. In fact, I can see quite clearly that you don't. You are completely innocent and you have absolutely nothing to do with my war against God. I know perfectly well that you guys are happy and innocent and that you are outside of this conflict. Well, unfortunately, the conflict has come to you. I have to fight God and you are the perfect target. So again, it's not about you guys. I actually kind of like you. Like I could pity you. And I'm almost melting as I look at how innocent and pure you are, but I must do this. Then from his lofty stand on that high tree, down he alights among the sportful herd of those four-footed kinds. Himself now one, now other, as their shape served best his end, nearer to view his prey. And unespied, to mark what of their state he more might learn by word or action marked. Around them round a lion now, he stalks with fiery glare. Then, as a tiger, who by chance hath spied in some purlieu two gentle fawns at play, straight couches close. Then, rising, changes oft his cushioned watch, as one who chose his ground, whence rushing he might surest seize them both gripped in each paw. When Adam, first of men, to first of women Eve, thus moving speech, turned him all ear to hear new utterance flow. I love that Satan is inhabiting different bodies of, of different animals to try and get closer to Adam and Eve to sort of spy on them. He inhabits the body of a lion, but then he's like, no, no, even better, a tiger. And you can sort of see this tiger in the trees getting closer to Adam and Eve, and it's about to pounce, and then Adam looks over at Eve and says... Soul partner, and soul part of all these joys, dearer thyself than all. Needs must the power that made us, and for us this ample world, be infinitely good, and of his good as liberal and free as infinite, that raised us from the dust and placed us here in all this happiness, who at his hand have nothing merited, nor can perform aught whereof he hath need. He who requires from us no other service than to keep this one, this easy charge of all the trees in paradise that bear delicious fruit so various not to taste that only tree of knowledge planted by the tree of life 
So near grows death to life, whatever death is. <laughs> yeah, some dreadful thing, no doubt. For well thou knowest, God hath pronounced it death to taste that tree. The only sign of our obedience left among so many signs of power and rule conferred upon us, and dominion given over all other creatures that possess earth, air, and sea. Then let us not think hard. One easy prohibition who enjoy free leave so large to all things else, and choice unlimited of manifold delights. But let us ever praise him and extol his bounty, following our delightful task, to prune these growing plants and tend these flowers, which were it toilsome, yet with thee were sweet. I love Adam here. He's such a cutie, right? He, he's sitting here talking to Eve, and he's just like, Oh, Eve, isn't this perfect? Especially being here with you, babe. I mean, you, out of all this stuff, all this beautiful surroundings, you are the best. And isn't this just all so perfect? I tell you what, the God who made all this stuff and put us into these circumstances must be infinitely good. And you know how I know that, Eve? Because everything I see around me is good. And what does he expect of us? What does he require? Nothing, just one thing, one rule. And he gives us dominion and rule over everything else. What a guy. Our one rule, of course, and I know you already know this, babe, but I'm going to mention it anyway. Our one rule, don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's growing right over there next to the tree of life. That's weird, isn't it? Death right next to life? Huh. I wonder what death is. Anyway, we're definitely not going to eat the fruit of that tree, right, Eve? That would be really, really stupid. Right, Eve? That would be super dumb to, like, throw away this perfect existence. So let's definitely not do that. We can just continue to live in total bliss. What do you say, babe? <laughs> One of my favorite comments from a student about this is uh, that, that Adam, the first words out of his mouth are mansplaining. That is, explaining a situation to a woman as if she is too dumb to understand it, when in fact that situation is perfectly evident to her and she could just as readily explain it to him. But she quietly and meekly submits to listen to this very obvious speech that Adam gives. Hey, everything's good. There's only one rule. Let's not break it. Well, Eve, she comes right back to Adam, and we can tell that she absolutely agrees. Of course she's not stupid enough to break the one rule and destroy their happiness. That would be absurd. To whom thus Eve replied, Oh, thou for whom and from whom I was formed, flesh of thy flesh, and without whom am to no end, my guide, my head, what thou hast said is just and right. For we to him indeed all praises owe, and daily thanks. I chiefly, who enjoy so far the happier lot, enjoying thee, preeminent by so much odds, while thou, like consort to thyself, canst nowhere find. 
And I'm sorry, these voices, I know they're silly, but I just think the descript, like the characterization of Adam and Eve at the beginning of our introduction to them, it frankly strikes me as silly. So, so I kind of lean into that silliness. Eve here is very accepting of Adam's role as the leader over her. At least that's what it sounds like here, because she's like, you know, yeah, absolutely. You are completely right. I mean, she, she says like the first thing. Oh, yeah, I know my place. I know who I am. I was formed flesh of thy flesh. This is referring to the rib situation that we'll talk about in some detail later. But again, the first thing she says is this submissive comment like, yeah, I understand that I am of you and that without you, I have no purpose. Line 442, without whom am to no end. I exist with no end or purpose unless I have you, Adam. You, on the other hand, I'm much happier than you because I have you above me to sort of be my leader and ruler. And uh, it's it's nice to have the company of somebody who can sort of uh, elevate you. You, on the other hand, well, unfortunately, as you look around, you have no peer here in Eden. And so I think I'm actually even happier than you. So yeah, I'm definitely not going to break the one rule. Thanks for the reminder, babe. Love ya. And then she jumps in, and this is another thing about her characterization that I think is so silly. She jumps into this long meandering story about her origin. It's almost like the stereotype of, of, a, of a woman who, once you get her talking, she just won't stop and has to say everything that's on her mind. Because I guess just saying, oh yeah, flesh of my flesh, that got her thinking about the day she came into existence. Listen to that day. The description of Eve's origin is so fascinating. Line 449. That day I oft remember when from sleep I First awaked. And found myself reposed under a shade on flowers, much wondering where and what I was, whence thither brought, and how. Not distant far from thence, a murmuring sound of waters issued from a cave and spread into a liquid plain, then stood unmoved, pure as the expanse of heaven. I thither went with unexperienced thought and laid me down on the green bank to look into the clear, smooth lake that to me seemed another sky. As I bent down to look, just opposite, a shape within the watery gleam appeared, bending to look on me. I started back. It started back, but pleased, I soon returned. Pleased, it returned as soon with answering looks of sympathy and love. There I had fixed mine eyes till now, and pined with vain desire, had not a voice thus warned me. Uh, what thou seest, what there thou seest, fair creature, is thyself. With thee it comes and goes, but follow me. I will bring thee where no shadow stays thy coming and thy soft embraces. He whose image thou art, him thou shalt enjoy inseparably thine. 
to him shalt bear multitudes like thyself, and thence be called Mother of Human Race. What could I do but follow straight, invisibly thus led? Till I spied thee, fair indeed, and tall, under a platen. Yet, methought, less fair, less winning soft, less amiably mild than that smooth, watery image. Back I turned, thou following criedst aloud, Return, fair Eve, whom fliest thou? Whom thou fliest, of him thou art, his flesh and bone. To give thee being, I lent out of my side to thee, nearest my heart, substantial life, to have thee by my side, henceforth an individual solace, dear. Part of my soul, I seek thee, and thee claim my other half. With that, thy gentle hand seized mine, I yielded, and from that time see how beauty is excelled by manly grace and wisdom, which alone is truly fair. Oh, I can't even begin. This is so. Oh my. Ha. Okay, so Eve, I, I, I love, I, I love the idea, right? The idea Milton has, of like, hey, what would it be like to just boom suddenly exist? What would that be like for Eve? Let's let's imagine it together. So she says, well, one day I think about this all the time. One day I suddenly came into existence. I woke up, and the very first thing I thought was, huh. I wonder what I am and where I came from and what my purpose is. You know, those questions that we immediately begin to ask the second we start to exist, those are the questions on Eve's mind on day one. What am I? Where did I come from? She hears, not far distant, uh, some, some water coming out of a cave. She goes toward that sound and she finds this beautiful, serene lake. And she looks into the lake, and of course, there's this image looking back at her. It scares her at first, and she jumps back, but then she looks again, and that image is looking right back at her. And how is that image looking at her? Well, folks, it's looking at her with love and desire. And what is that image? Of course, it's her reflection. She instinctively falls in love with her own image. It's so beautiful. As she looks around, it's by far the most beautiful thing. And as it looks at her with longing, so she looks at it. And she says she would have stayed there to this day, pining with vain desire. I don't have to tell you probably that this seems to invoke the myth of Narcissus, this character who died pining over his own reflection. And I gotta say it's just a little bit problematic that a God who created everything perfect 
left Eve to herself in this initial moment of existence, and the very first thing she did was to fall in love with her own image. God has to get on the mic and say, hey, hey, no, 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 hey, stop, no, oh, you, that's you, no, that's just, uh, you, he's over, he's over there, Adam's over there, listen, I'm sorry, I was, I'm, I'm late, but, hey, okay, you're supposed to be the mother of the human race, and, and in order to do that, you gotta go be with this guy, okay, that's your job, sorry, and after this voice from the sky, um, uh, Eve's like, oh, 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 okay. Well, all right. And what else could she do? I mean, she's in- invisibly led by this voice from the sky. So sure enough, she leaves the lake and she heads over to meet Adam, this man who she's supposed to be with. And, and she takes one good look at Adam. You know, she looks him up and down and she thinks, mm, solid seven. Yeah, that's a no from me. And she turns around to go back to the lake. She turns around after looking at Adam because he's really not that attractive compared to that beautiful watery image in the lake. Adam is mm, upper D's. And so she turns around while Adam reaches out and grabs her arm and says, hey, you're mine. His language here is tender and compelling. He says, oh, hey, You actually came from me. You came from my body. You are of my flesh. I gave thee being by lending out of my side, nearest my heart. Again, this is that rib, which is going to become so fascinating and interesting the more we talk about it. But he tells her, like, oh, you're actually of me. And you were made for me to be by my side. You're part of my soul. And and so I'm here to claim you as my other half. And Eve yields and submits. Even though in that moment she feels instinctively drawn back to that image in the lake, she submits to Adam anyway, and over time, she says, she has come to learn how manly grace and wisdom excels beauty. So she may very well be more attractive than Adam, but what she has learned from him is that attractiveness is less important than manly qualities such as wisdom. This next little section is a little bit PG-13. Adam and Eve have had their first conversation. They've had their wonderful dinner. The sun is going down. The animals are going to sleep. And, well, they love each other. And... As Milton has also taken great pains to describe, they are naked, and they are not ashamed of that in the least. I'll let Milton say it. So spake our general mother, and with eyes of conjugal attraction unreproved and meek surrender, 
half-embracing, leaned on our first father. Half her swelling breast naked met his under the flowing gold of her loose tresses hid. He in delight, both of her beauty and submissive charms, smiled with superior love as Jupiter on Juno smiles when he imprends the clouds that shed May flowers and pressed her matron lip with kisses pure. Aside, the devil turned for envy. Yet with jealous leer malign eyed them askance, and to himself thus plained. Sight hateful, sight tormenting, thus these two Paradised in one another's arms, the happier Eden shall enjoy their fill of bliss on bliss, while I to hell am thrust, where neither joy nor love, but fierce desire among our other torments not the least, still unfulfilled with pain of longing pines. Yet let me not forget what I have gained from their own mouths. All is not theirs, it seems. One fatal tree there stands of knowledge called, forbidden them to taste. Knowledge? Forbidden? Suspicious. Reasonless. Why should their lord envy them that? Can it be sin to know? Can it be death? And do they only stand by ignorance? Is that their happy state, the proof of their obedience and their faith? Ho, 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 fair foundation laid whereon to build their ruin. Hence, I will excite their minds with more desire to know and to reject envious commands invented with design to keep them low, whom knowledge might exalt. Equal with gods. Aspiring to be such, they taste and die. What likelier can ensue? Uh, but first, with narrow search, I must walk round this garden, and no corner leave unspied. A chance, but chance may lead where I may meet some wandering spirit of heaven by fountainside or in thick shade retired from him to draw what further would be learned. Live while ye may, ye happy pair. Enjoy till I return. Short pleasures for long woes are to succeed. So saying, his proud step he scornful turned, but with sly circumspection, 
and began through wood, through waste, or hill, or dale, his roam. All right, so Adam and Eve experiencing some of that unrivaled joy and uninterrupted love at the end of their little conversation after their dinner and a show. Well, they lean on each other and start kissing, and I think it's fairly clearly implied here by Milton, and a lot of Milton scholars would back me up on this, that the implication here is that Adam and Eve have a fully formed adult intimate relationship. This is certainly controversial in terms of various interpretations of the Adam and Eve story from Genesis, but in Milton's version of this story, Adam and Eve do have an intimate sexual relationship. Why is that important and worth talking about? Well, it's going to have some major implications in looking at this story from a particularly Miltonic point of view. Speaking of looking at things, Satan, we might have noticed, was watching the whole time. And I got to say, it's pretty funny that in line 502, the devil enters mid-line. 502 ends our description of Adam and Eve's intimacy with the words, kisses pure. And just as that image is before the reader's eyes, Aside, the devil turns for envy, and we're like, oh, no, Satan's still watching? And that's the thing about it, right? He turns his eyes away, but he can't really look away, and so he kind of side-eyes them. He looks askance at them as he says his next speech. That is Super creepy, of course, and super Satan. That he's trying to turn away from this sight because it's just so painful for him to watch others experience such bliss and joy, which is, of course, forever denied him. And he gets really upset by it until he's able to remind himself, oh yeah, wait, I got exactly what I needed out of this interaction. I learned that they are forbidden to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're like, oh yeah, Adam did kind of say that, didn't he? When he was mansplaining to Eve, he kind of laid out the whole situation. And now Satan knows their one weakness He thinks to himself, that's weird. I mean, that's really strange. And I love, this is one of Satan's Satan's great speeches. It's so weird that God would forbid them knowledge. Why would he do that? It doesn't seem to have a reason, and it's very suspicious. (gasps) Wait. Are they so happy simply because they are ignorant? Are they in bliss and paradise because they don't know any better? Oh, this is perfect. All I have to do. Oh my gosh. And his plan just, it, it, it's almost like it just enters into his mind fully formed. He thinks, all I have to do, this is so easy. All I have to do is, is convince them that knowledge will exalt them. All they have to do is eat this fruit. And they'll be like gods. 
I'm going to tell them that God is keeping them low by restricting knowledge from them. That God is keeping them in their place because he envies them. And all they have to do is take a bite of that fruit and they will no longer be subject to God. I don't think Satan knows why God has restricted the forbidden fruit from Adam and Eve. He seems to be kind of speculating. His speculation is, of course, something that we recognize and understand. The speculation that their happiness and bliss is, in fact, predicated on their ignorance. And that goes back directly to what Adam said about creation and creation's goodness. Hey, Eve. God's all good. Know how I know that? Because everything around us is good. Adam doesn't know that evil exists. And so he doesn't know that God could be evil. And that's Satan's way in to these two innocent, loving, and joyful minds. Next time, a summary of books five through eight, and then we'll jump in to book nine. Book nine is where it all goes down. Satan will begin his temptation, and soon, Adam and Eve are going to kiss paradise. <laughs>